This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by Black Belt CBD. If you're into CBD products or you want to try CBD products for the very first time, please visit blackbeltcbdproducts.com. Use promo code THEPODCAST25. You'll get 25% off. This, you do not smoke. You do not ingest. It's pure rub-ons, roll-ons, all on top of your muscles. Less than 1% THC, so you'll not get high if that's what you're worried about. Does wonders for athletes, for blue-collar workers, pretty much anyone who has aches and pains. So go check out blackbeltcbdproducts.com. If you're into nerd culture, or you like collectibles or sign memorabilia or sports memorabilia, visit firstroll.ca. This is a Canadian company based out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. So to all you American listeners, everything you see there is in Canadian funds. So it's a little bit cheaper rate for you and they update daily. But if you use promo code THEPODCAST20, you'll get 20% off as well. And like I just mentioned, they update daily. So there's no need not to visit it every day. Like I said, they have comic books, signed baseballs, hockey cards, baseball cards, literally anything you need or want. That's nerd culture. They got it there. And lastly... Go visit BossFightBooks.com if you're into video game-based books. This is not based on video games. This is more of the author telling their side of the story of a video game that either touched their eye or they loved as a child. Whatever it may be, go check it out. They And especially go check out Super Mario Brothers 3. That's a great book, I heard. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's nice and cheap. You could get an ebook copy for as little as $4.95, but they also have paperback, which is $14.95. Please visit bossfightbooks.com today. And if you want to support me directly, please visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device that you're listening to me on. It's embedded right there into the in the description. Click on the link, it takes you two seconds. I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts to baby onesies to mugs to COVID masks. Literally anything you need or want, it is there. But if you don't want to support anything monetarily, it's totally understandable. The easiest thing you could do to support this podcast and myself, free of charge, takes you two seconds. Rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week's guest is a professor, an editor, and the writer behind Super Mario Brothers 3, which I just mentioned, oddly enough, from Boss Fight Books, Elise Snor. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Steve. Not a problem. Thanks for coming aboard. What's going on? Not too much. I'm just like teaching and writing and trying to raise a toddler during uh, COVID times. Well, at least you have one up on other parents. At least you're a teacher, so you could have your own curriculum. You don't have to depend on the school board or however it is, That's a good point. It's so I teach um, college English, so I've oh, like tried nice. sitting Lucy down and being like, "Okay, so Lucy, like, how do you think Gertrude Stein's poetry continues to influence oh, like wow. feminist experimental writers to this day?" And she's just like, "Da da ba ba la la." <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I think I would say that too if you brought that up to me. Never mind. <laughs> she's so funny because she just like is learning all these words and i don't even know anymore what words she knows so she'll just we'll be looking at a book together and she she just points to an oval and says oval and i'm like since when do you know that word that's really cool and 
she'll point to her wrist and say elbow and I'm like well you're I mean if, yeah, I'm glad you know the word now we have to work on the words have meaning so. <laughs> that's true I get like they say baby steps right how fitting <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's really true. I guess that's where it comes from. Well, the mo- the big reason I have you on today, obviously, you're part of Boss Fight Books. You edit there. You write for them as well. So how did you get involved from the beginning with Gabe? Did you first get involved by editing or was it through Super Mario Brothers 3? Actually, I um, I think it was in 2013 or 2014. I was living in Alaska. I had a nine-month by nine-month um, term professor contract. Oh, I see. Okay. So my job wasn't you know super stable. Um, it's not like having a job on the tenure track or something. Sure. And I really wanted to. So I published a couple of books of poetry. I'm a poet by training. Oh, nice. And I wanted to break into nonfiction, and I wanted to try to. Um, better my writing and also advance my career by like sure. publishing a book in another genre. And so I saw this call for uh, pitches. I remember it was April. You had to get your pitch in by April mm-hmm. for boss fight. Okay. And I thought like, if I'm going to spend time, you know, researching and writing a nonfiction book, I wanted to be about something I love and I love video games. So I pitched him <laughs> a book about, I pitched him the super Mario brothers three book and I sent him, I had never done any video games writing before. I had done some journalism. Okay. I was trained in journalism in, in college. So I sent him some like journalistic articles I'd published. And I think I sent him a short story I'd written to show him like, more creative work. Right. And then I sent him like a, a pitch on like why it's worth doing a book on Mario 3 and why I should write it. And mm-hmm. I think a, champ, uh, a chapter outline. And he wrote back and he said, like, I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm, I'm interested in your pitch, but doing a book on Mario 3 is like, what's left to say about the game, you know, like it, like a lot has already been said. So can <laughs> right. we set up a call? So, so we talked on the phone and okay. I just like, I, so I, right from the beginning, I just loved working with him. And, mm-hmm. um, and so then, you know, I, I wrote the book and then he was kind enough to, um, down the road, get me involved in reading some pitch submissions and doing some first round editorial feedback for authors. Okay. And, uh, Gabe is just the, like smartest, nicest editor in the world. I mean, I know you know him, but he, he's just so such a pleasure to work with. So um, that's how I got started. I just sent him a random pitch, basically. So why super? Again, like he said, everyone's written to death about this game. Well, I know because I read the book, but for people who don't know, I haven't read the book. Yeah. Why Super Mario Three? What was it so special? Is and first off, is it your yeah. favorite video game of all time? I think it is. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a pretty. I think I feel pretty sure about that. It's, okay, okay. It played a really significant role for me growing up because my father um, taught me how to play the game. Like before, I could read. He was teaching me how to play video games, oh, wow. and I would sit in his lap, and he okay. would. We play Doom together. <laughs> we nice. play Mario Three together. <laughs> And Mario 3 is like a more approachable game for a little kid. So I was like three or four when he taught me how to play Mario. And we just had so much special time together. Um, He eventually had to move out of state after um, for a job after my parents got divorced. So I just have these like really fond memories of of connecting with him and bonding with him over the game. And it also like oddly enough, um, the game really helped me kind of like at a young age, um, find an outlet for like my queer sexuality because mm. it was so satisfying rescuing a princess i didn't really know why at the time but I just <laughs> sure. the, the whole like rescuing a damsel thing like really got to me and really was like really exciting right um and so so the games meant a lot to me personally but i also am a really big fan of um i'm, I'm, I'm writing a second book for boss fight right now i'm working on oh, a second nice. title right now and um i just think that there's something to be said for like if, if all the stuff's been written about the game, I really like collecting it in one place to just, okay. like, tell the story in one cohesive book of, like, here's the story of Mario 3. You can find all the sources and all the information, like, collected in one narrative, one... Because um, it's just, like, there's always, like, a listicle coming out or an appreciation article on Kotaku, and those are great, yeah. but... I really, I have this like completionist mindset about okay. <laughs> collecting and like sure. collating and then like just kind of like putting it all in one place. I get it. I like that a lot. Well, and again, you mentioned it. You played it with your dad. Now, back in the day, parents weren't known to play video games. Now, parents probably play more than their actual kids. But back then, it was very odd. So what got your dad into video games? This is intriguing to it's me. It's so true. That's a great question, Steve. I mean, I, I think what it is is that, like, my dad is a really competitive person. So he, okay. he's always loved games. Like, he's always loved sports. And um, I think he played a lot of the, like... Um, 
tabletop like baseball games okay. with all the statistics sure. and stuff growing up as a yeah, kid yeah. in his room by himself and he was also a computer programmer so oh. i think he was like around electronic you know gaming and at work i know that um you know that's that's probably where he came into contact with doom mm. and he just um yeah i don't know we just he we had an nes and what i would do is um he would stay up late at night playing these games. Okay. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just to play them with me. He, he was really competitive and he loved games. Right. And I would sneak down the stairs and I had figured <laughs> out that there was a picture frame hanging on the wall. Right. And if I sat on the stairs, I could watch the TV screen in the living room through the reflection on the wall in yeah. that picture frame. And so I would just watch him play also <laughs> all night, unbeknownst to him. Um, until at some point, I think I fell asleep on the stairs and they caught me, but... Uh, it was it was just so much fun to to see how to like cheer him on and like root for him and um, and then it's a game that I played with my brother and and now I, I'm really excited that I get to like teach my daughter how to play it. I've, I've been right. like, just kind of showing it to her. She's too small, but she thinks it's funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, another thing that wasn't known back in the day too, and that people harped on now that it's regular to being a tomboy. You mentioned in the book you love stuff yeah. like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He Man, all this sort of stuff that I grew up with as well. But back then, it was like, oh, you're a tomboy. Get away from me. So how did you deal with that growing up? Yeah, it's like, I, you know, the, um, the the really fun thing about researching this book was that the, the couple of women that I spoke to, one was a um, communication professor mm-hmm. at High Point University, Christina Bell, right. and also just a couple friends of mine, women friends who just really grew up loving games. And it, it seemed like because this was kind of before like Mattel launched all the like Barbie video games and all that stuff, for whatever reason, like video games were marketed to boys and they were really heavily like, you know, as were, you know, just computers in general, which Mm -hmm. kind of creates this gender gap in, in like STEM fields. But anyway, um, connecting with all of these women about like how we, we were able to come to our, like an understanding or appreciation of our tomboy identities, I guess, like through these games. And Mm -hmm. then when I would connect, like when I was talking to Christina Bell, this professor, we're just like bonding over like we all loved the same you know we loved the same mario games but we also had teenage Mutant ninja turtles and she told me a story about like cutting up a bunch of barbies and like putting their body parts in a drawer because she hated barbies um yeah it's just really it's really fun that um in games you can kind of be anyone you know like i i could like be this like male character like pursuing this you know princess or whatever and Mm -hmm. like you're kind of in that digital avatar, it's kind of like a, if you're a female player playing as a male character, there's like this inherent kind of querying going on there, which I think is really cool. Well, do you think nowadays it's better than, well, obviously it's better, but do you think it's at the level it should be like for women and the LGBT community as a whole, like that they're being represented enough or is it still, you think male dominated? I mean, there's plenty of good writing about this, about how there's like always room to improve, both in terms of like the amount of representation and like how characters are represented, that they can be more than just damsels or sexualized objects. But at the same time, because so many, you know, women gamers and and queer Mm -hmm. gamers, there's also just so many exciting things going on, whether you're um, looking at games that um, give you the space to queer things up. I mean, like my, my favorite game right now is sky is still skyrim i've okay. like i haven't stopped playing it for 10 years wow. and it's just like it's the only game for me that like i i've i was kind of stunned that i could just like build a female avatar and like right. marry a female character gotcha, and yeah. have have like a queer have a lesbian marriage within the context of this video game that kind of right. blew my mind um that i don't have to become a male character in order to pursue the female like right. i thought that was really really neat and so i think there's all kinds of exciting things going on for um for women and queer queer uh, developers and gamers um, it's a good time well for me myself i just finished playing borderlands 3 and everyone knows the whole borderlands universe it's riddled with everything like i don't even think anyone's like completely straight they never really say but like you know you have gay marriages you have queer marriages you have all this going on love stories in the background and i just love how borderlands does it and i love to the fact that because i'm a i'm a big believer and supporter but i just hate the people who just ram it down your throat non-stop and they try and make that the sole subject and it's like okay at least if it's sprinkled in and it's naturally and organic as people always say i think that's the best way of doing it it's nice when you know i always love when in a movie there's a queer character, but they just are, they just happen to be queer. It's not right. the storyline isn't about that because Thank you. I, you know, I'm very proud of my queer identity and mm-hmm. I, I love being a woman, but 
also I'm just a person and, and so like it's exhausting to like always have to be like the queer person in the right. room. And so so when you have it just be this kind of incidental I mean, of course, it's like important to tell stories about queer people's lives and their queerness. Right. But when they can just appear and exist the way that we do in the wild, like <laughs> I'm just a queer at the grocery store and I'm just a queer playing my guitar. And like, right. it's, it's just really refreshing because there's like in Skyrim, it's like the game doesn't doesn't really notice whether you're playing as male or female and when you're romancing a male or female character everyone is pansexual and it's right. that's just like how the it's like how the universe is ordered within skyrim and i think that's really pretty radical even if it's just a game mechanic <laughs> you don't only write about your personal stuff in the book you also go behind the scenes and you bring up stuff like yeah. even with but with the music and everything so totally. how did you manage in your brain or even to put it on paper to weave so like because it like you said it's so organically it goes so perfectly it's not like forced you'll tell one story about yourself then you go literally right into the developers and what's going on so what made you decide to write the book that way oh well thanks for saying that that's really kind um i it, it feels really organically like i i'm, I'm really a curious person and i like to know how things work right. and i like to i like to collect so my process involves just like First, I just tried to, like, read everything I could find on Mario 3, but also on, like, Nintendo in that era and the Mario franchise in general and just, like, how games are made and how games are marketed. So I read, I I mean, I just read hundreds of articles and dozens and dozens of of books um, and chapters in books. I read video game theory. I read, you know, video game music theory. I read all these things just looking for something I could apply. I read you know, theory, ludology, just like ludology books about like why games are fun and what makes them fun and um, the role of failure in games. Then I got to go interview people. So I would interview Mm. games researchers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, professors of various universities. And I would interview game developers who could speak to like the role that Mario had played in the history of games development. And then I was lucky enough to speak to um, two of the people on the Nintendo team around Mario. None right. of the none of the um, Nintendo Japan employees because they're okay. very famously secret. <laughs> but two of the former Nintendo of America employees, uh, um, Howard Phillips, the game master, and Gail Tilden, right. who created Nintendo Power Magazine. Wow. They were really generous and uh, speaking to me over the phone and um, telling me about what they remember from that era, marketing the game, um, what they appreciate about the game. And, right. Um, so I think that like I, I would just I would research everything. I would talk to everyone. I would have all my notes. And I would write these chunks of material and it weaving it all together took many, many, many drafts, some by myself and then uh, many with, with uh, Mike Williams and Gabe at Boss Fight mm-hmm. helping me figure out what order to tell everything in. Because right. I was also trying to weave in a, a, a linear playthrough of the game where we're kind of getting uh, references to sure. each of the eight worlds of in course. order. <laughs> so it was just like beating this thing into like into submission to like the order that it needed to be took a lot of uh work and time and just um then you can then you can do a a pretty high degree of polish with things like you know just transitions in and out of uh sections and chapters Mm -hmm. um but i was just really lucky in how hands-on gabe and mike were in offering suggestions about things to move around and things to delete and things to change the first draft of the book was like three or four times longer than the final, which is pretty typical for me as I write way more and then I right. shrink it down to the most interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, I just, I like when books, I really like books that blend um, memoir and uh, interviews and research. Susan, I just, I'm reading Susan Orlean's the library book right now about mm-hmm. the 1981 Los Angeles library fire. And she's like talking about growing up with her mom and going to the library. And she's talking to people who are at the fire and yeah. going through the newspaper archives about the fire. And I just love that style of writing. I think it's really cool. Well, you said it, a lot of stuff got cut out. So what's the one thing, if you could add one more tidbit that you didn't add in that got released, what would it be? Ooh. Okay. So I, I was really lucky in that, um, I took the leftover material that I had and I actually, uh, it found a home with, um, Chris Kohler at Kotaku published three or four articles. One was about, um, how Super Mario Brothers three speedrunners like use the music in the game to time everything. They can actually do their speedruns with their eyes closed because it's all based on the music. Um, and then there was a, there was an article published. I think the headline with Kotaku was something like, 
Mario is supposed to be cute, which is why his nipples grossed everyone out. And the article, <laughs> so the oh article, like the the occasion in the lead of the article was that the like oh Mario in his bathing suit had just premiered for one of the Mario Galaxy games, uh, and people okay. the inter- the internet just like had a conniption fit about being able to see his nipples. Everyone was really grossed out by that, right? And I could use that to frame this material I had left over from the Mario book. Because Mike Williams, who is uh, fluent in Japanese, lived in Japan. Mm. Um, he's a really great, uh, and he, he's one of the boss fight editors. Right. He had really pointed me toward this this body of research, um, or, or just this, this this like cultural phenomenon in Japan that I was okay. unaware of around cuteness and like um, all like how you know the, the obsession with cuteness in Japan, but mm-hmm. then the degrees of it that there's like creepy cute and there's baby cute right. and there's like creepy cute cute like there's all these different variants mm-hmm. and so i was able to you know sell that article to kotaku and, and get it out there somewhere but that kind of stuff was fascinating but it was just kind of going off on a tangent a little too much for the book itself right um but mario mario as a character in this kind of paradox of you know, with Hello Kitty or something, it's like she's super cute and she's a cat. Right. With Mario, he's super cute and like round, and he goes wee yahoo, and he's, <laughs> he's so he's supposed to be so cute, yeah, yeah. but he's also supposed to be like a forty-something Brooklyn-based Italian right? plumber with a mustache who lives with his brother. <laughs> so, like, what, like, what are we supposed to do with like him being like this like stuffed animal, like Nintendo mascot of cuteness? But he's also this, like, New York plumber. Like, I just found that really fascinating. Yeah, no kidding. And the other thing I loved about your book, too, was half the stuff reminded me what Mario 3 was about. And then the other half was like, oh, I had no idea this, this happened back then. Like, when you brought up, what, what's that, uh, I always forget the name of the huge fish that swallows you, Boss Bass. Is that the name of it? Oh, yeah. I think it's Boss Bass. Let me, let me check. Oh yeah, Boss my Bass. God. Oh, my God. Uh, my hand started climbing up because I remembered as a child... <laughs> Holy shit, that I had heart attacks every time I played that level. That my dad too would get so mad he would throw his controller across the screen. That and like, me. Just like it's a, it's a, I mean, for those who don't remember, Boss Bass is that yeah. fish that would that would swim around and jump out of the water and try to swallow you. And it's a great idea for like a, a, like all the all the enemies in Super Mario Brothers three. Of course, are cute. They have big eyes. Yeah. They you know they're adorable, but they're also deadly. And Boss Bass, he's this like cute fish. But the way they designed the levels in that game, and the way they designed their character, the character really like up the stakes like usually if you get hit by an enemy it will make you go from like big mario down to small mario yes. whereas if you fall in the lava even if you're big mario you die instantly or exactly. if you fall into a pit boss bass worked that way he just ate you and you were dead it didn't matter if you had a power suit or right? if you and and you could kill him and he'd come back he would return i hated that. even if you killed him and then just the ways that the levels would like they had those levels that would like sink into the water and you'd be like in his lair in his clutches in the water just brilliant level design to make you have that super panicky feeling they would play the the the, like friend there's like a couple different songs throughout mario and they would play the frantic music soundtrack on that level and Gosh, they, I, I hear you. Like, I, if Boss Pass doesn't give you nightmares, it's like you didn't really play the game. I don't know, especially the second time you encounter him when it goes extra deep and it's the blue blocks, I think, what it yes. is. Oh, <laughs> that, I, that's where I saved the P for all the time. I'm like, screw this level. I'm going right to the end. <laughs> yes, it's, um, it's just not worth it to stress out like that. And I, I think that in the process of researching, I reread the entire Nintendo Power Strategy Guide. Right. And there's that, like, cheeky, you know, tone that they were trying to adopt, probably to sound, like, hip, you know, they were, like, like, like whatever. But they uh, they say in the, the strategy guide, Boss Bass, we think you'll dislike him. <laughs> we think you'll... <laughs> wow. It's like the understatement of the century. Like, yeah, you, you, you probably won't like this one. And then the other character that gave me nightmares until I figured it out, and now it's like a breeze because I went back and played it again, was the Flying Sun that had eyes that looked like <sighs> women's breasts for some reason. Yes, I don't know why. It's very weird. But the <laughs> right. sun, oh my god. My dad, that was one of the ones that my dad would be so um, scared of. We would like be like stealing ourselves to get to that level and um, like saving our pee wings for that level. It's just that so. Too. And that's the thing that's really interesting about Mario 3 is that I was talking to a developer uh, about like what his thoughts on the game. And he was, he said to me, the reason Mario 3 is so great is because it has a lot of weird, messy stuff in it. And I was oh, like, what do you mean okay. by weird, messy stuff? Like, it's a game with a pretty high degree of 
of polish went into right. it, you know, as far as like the art and the the game feel exquisite, like the feeling of just controlling Mario on that the screen in that game is, yeah. is, is gorgeous. And what he was talking about, I think, is that there's these one-off things. Like there's only one level with the sun. They, they created yeah. this whole mechanic where the sun attacks you from the sky, almost mm-hmm. like you're getting heat stroke in the desert or something. <laughs> and then they, and then they, and then they just only use it in that level. I mean, it's a game with like 40 or 50 levels and they, they only use it in that one or the, um, when Mario's in the little shoe that like the mechanical shoe, you yes. can control my favorite level. That's so fun. Yes. And you'd think like in a game today, if they <clears throat> introduce a metric like that, or like a, a power up or an enemy, you're gonna they're gonna use it multiple times it's not gonna just be like oh here's here's the random sun level and that's that's one of the things that's just so great about the game is that there's just like all these surprises and all these like weird little um just one-off things really unique things now did you find it actually difficult playing it like the first obviously now that you're better it's probably not difficult but the first few times because i'll have to admit like maybe the when i was a child then once i turned maybe 13 or 14 and i started knowing better and having my dexterity and knowing what i'm doing i flew through it like to me mario 3 is not a hard game like but then again i also don't find mega man that hard either so maybe I don't want to pat myself on the back, but but again, that was that was before. Now I tried picking up a Mega Man game. Yeah, right. Get the hell out of here. But back in the day, I did not find those games hard. No, me neither. I I'm sure there was a period at which it was hard for me. Right, Um, of course, like everyone. But but I don't remember it. All I remember is just having this fluency. And and some of those levels in Mario Three are really complicated mazes right or they have a trick like there's the ice world level where you have to grab a shell and fly with it up right um in order like what the game has never taught you that you need to know how to do that but you'll just run out of time and die and be in an infinite loop if you can't figure it out but i had seen my dad play all of it and play all of those and so i knew all the tricks i knew the trick about um in World Eight, there's a there's a Navy warship where you're, um, okay. there's like lava that, you, but you can dive under the ship and swim your way through the level. Oh, and you don't have to actually. I did not know you that. Have to try it. It's great. Okay. So I just seen him use all these tricks, right. and I knew the way my way around the mazes. And now I yeah. I still know my way around the mazes. Like it's just yeah. like embedded in my body or something. And so I know. yeah, I have this passage in the book where I talk about like just like kind of like beating the game really fast in front of some people who are playing it like. To an almost embarrassing degree, like I use one life to beat the whole game. Right. Especially, I mean, in the warp, if you have the warp whistles, it's like whatever. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's just like, I, I think it's so funny that there's those things that like, um, and other games aren't that way. Like games like um, GoldenEye, I'm not good at it anymore. I was really okay. good at it as a kid. Really can't play it now, but Mario is just in there forever, I think. It is, because now me and my, this is why I love Mario too, because me and my wife play Mario to death. Like all the versions, we played the Wii version, the Switch version. Now we're going back to play the older ones again. We just finished Mario 2. We're starting again back on Mario 3. And when she's like, how, how do you remember all that? I'm like, it's like riding a bike. Like I'm like, cause she yes. played, she played the flute level, the first flute level where you duck behind the background and she was about to go, I'm like, stop, stop. She's like, what? I'm going to go get the bonus. I'm like, no, no, go back. You see that white thing? Push yep. down and wait. She's like, how did you yes. remember that? I'm like, I don't yes. know. It just came to me. And how did, and, the, and the, the other interesting question is how did we find out? Because I right? don't remember ever, I don't remember my dad or I ever reading the strategy guide. Me neither. And, there was no internet, so nope. we just all knew where the freaking whistle was. I don't like, know, word of mouth, but who who was the first person to find this stuff out? That's what I, I want to know. know. I know it's like it, and the, the game just is full, like everything in this game is about secrets and surprises yes. and like you know rewarding this feeling of exploration and um, and and poking around. And so once you find something, you just like <laughs> you just know you just know where it is, and you're like, how could I not? Uh, finish level one without getting the coins shaped like a three in the sky that you fly to like like I'm not, you're not doing the level right if you don't get it exactly and how awesome was it too speaking of all the level ups and power ups and everything the first time you got that tanuki suit how cool was that oh the tanuki suit right <laughs> you're like you're like wait this looks like the oh shit i'm a statue <laughs> i know and you know what uh, I only found out later when I started playing again in my 20s or 30s that you could turn into a statue. I knew you could turn into a statue, but I never knew that that made you invis- in- invisible and people walked by you. How dumb was I? Yeah, I never that, figured that out. Or that, you could, or that you could fly and then become a Tanuki suit and ground pound people. I never knew that. That I, I did was researching know. researching this book. 
That I knew. So that's why I figured that an enemy could walk through you because, I mean, couldn't walk through you because if you could kill them, they could kill you. So that's why I never really used that that way. (laughs) It was a huge... The Tanuki suit, oh my God, it's the best thing because not only is it such a a fun suit... I mean, Mario 3 just had all the suits. That's what made it so fun. The The frog suit too was my favorite. Yeah, the frog suit, the Hammer Brothers suits. You've got like defensive moves combined with offensive moves and... Because they, they knew people liked the power-ups in the very first Mario game, the mushroom and the flower. So then they're right. like, let's do all of these power-ups. Um, and it's a tradition that the series keeps going with. But the Tanuki suit was also great because no one knew what, like, no, with both the Tanuki and the raccoon suit, no one in America understood yes. why would being a raccoon let me fly? And really the Tanuki is this, like, rich folklore thing in Japan. Um, yep. It's this, like, you know, it's it's this famous Shinto folklore um symbol since ancient times and um i'm sure you know about like the tanuki testicles thing i was like, just gonna bring it up you bring it up in your book yeah. so, i think you actually word for word say the gigantic scrotums <laughs> yeah he's like okay so if you're if next time you go to a japanese restaurant you'll see a statue of the tanuki he's like a super cute um fox-like dog-like um animal that, that is yeah. a real animal in yeah. um, in japan i remember I, I thought it was just just a mythical creature but then mike told me yeah here's a picture of one it lived under my house when i was in japan and that's I was like, crazy oh, okay. so it's this so you'll see statues of him because he's, he's meant to symbolize like good fortune or good luck gotcha and so okay. he's always got like a he's got like a an empty wallet and a bottle of booze and then he has enormous testicles and like they even have like schoolyard songs in japan about the 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 tanuki's bollocks swinging and um if if you're listening to this right now and you just google tanuki um t-a-n-u-k-i and testicles you'll see in like different art and different um statues just just how big these things are you'll see art of people of tanuki like you know, using their ball sacks as like parachutes or <laughs> nets to catch fish with, or like blankets to keep themselves warm. Wow. They're like just kind of cozying up underneath their scrotums. It's so, so weird and amazing. But that's the thing about all these uh, original first generation NES uh, Nintendo games. Like Miyamoto had all these things, it all came from inspiration around Japan. But for us here, in North America, we don't know that because, again, back then there was no internet, so we didn't know their culture. Right. I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense that the Tanuki turns into a statue in Japan because there's Tanuki statues everywhere, mm. and they're kind of like watching out over you. And and if we if we if we consider that maybe the raccoon is flying with his ball sack, <laughs> which can be used as a parachute or whatever, even the, the flying raccoon or flying Tanuki makes sense. But here in America, it was just like. I guess I'm a statue. I don't. I don't know why. And and there's just so many great like, uh, like localization things to look at with a game like Mario, where um, you you and you didn't have some things in America that like naming the um, the Koopalings, the the bad guys in the mm. game. The American translators like gave them all names of like musicians. That's so right. The one who's supposed to be like I had no idea about that. Yes, I, I like that too. And I didn't even know because uh, this whole time, even to this day, until I read your book. I thought, there we go, spoiler alert, I'm going to break people's hearts. I never knew that they weren't uh, Bowser's kids. I always thought they were Bowser's kids. I know. And then they kind of like retconned it, right? They were just like, oh, you know, this is getting too complicated. And at some point, like Bowser and like Peach had a kid. Oh, my God. They they, they don't know know what's going on with all this, um, like... The family tree or whatever. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah, I guess they, they were, like, uh, modeled after the um, the different developers. Like, the people on the development team each kind of, like, was a, a model for the, the look and appearance of one of the Koopalings. But that, um, you know, I, I don't know. Miyamoto's kind of always just, like, rewriting the mythology or whatever. There's a whole, like, play thing with Mario 3 that it's all supposed to have been a play. Right. Um, I was going to bring that up, too. Thing. Yeah, that, I think he officially <laughs> came out and said, yeah, it's all a play. And it's, he did. And yeah. I was like, oh. But you know what? It makes sense. Yeah, like, the beginning. It's it a does. curtain. I think, I think like, my guess as to why that's so important to him is because of two reasons. One is that you have to find some way to explain why, in a game like Mario 3, Mario and Luigi are fighting against Bowser, but then in a game like Mario Tennis, they're just hanging out together playing tennis. Right. You have to explain that. But also Nintendo has always been just so squeaky clean um, around its like family-friendly image that they don't like for there to be any kind of violence in any games True. or any kind of um, 
people died or people were hurt. So when you have um, the theater set up at the end, when the curtain, literally the curtain lifts and they do a yeah. curtain call, it's, it's showing like, even, even this like turtle who you threw down a bottomless pit in level five, um, he's fine. He was just an actor. Exactly. Know? Right. And the same thing in, even though it's not a real sequel to any of the Mario's or the lineage, Mario two, right? Same thing. At first, you have the curtain, but then at the end, again, if no one's cleared it, I'm sorry, I'm going to break your hearts, but it's a dream. It's Mario dreaming. Like, what the hell? Exactly. I know. I know. It's so funny. He, he doesn't want any, like, real violence or real killing to happen. So, um, and, and I think, like, I talk in the book a little bit about how this also kind of taps into this, like, um, kabuki theater tradition in Japan where you're mm. breaking the fourth wall a lot right. and kind of, like, bringing the audience and the, and the actors together playfully or dramatically. So there's even little thing, little, like, in addition to the curtains raising in, in Mario 3 or Mario 2, like, when Mario dies in Mario 3, he, he looks right at the, the, um, the player, you know, as he kind of falls off the screen after dying. And he right. does the same thing in Super Mario World when he um, beats a level. He, like, turns and faces the camera and gives you a thumbs up. So there's, right. there's all kinds of, like, kabuki things going on. And, and, the, and the costumes are very much, like, you know, kabuki kind of, like... Um, you know, Kigurimi, like this this monster costume inspired by a mythical beast, or um, so yeah. It's, it's just really, I think it's really like beautiful and, and exciting that there's so much Japanese culture baked into this game, and that it was a time when American uh, Americans, like the, the way journalists wrote about Nintendo at this time period, mm-hmm. they were terrified of what Nintendo was doing because oh. they were like, I mean, the the names of um, the names of the books published around this time is like how Nintendo conquered America or like how oh, the Japanese giant is like I taking see. over our, you know, economy or whatever. Right. And Sony was taking off and like, um, people were just really freaked out about the, Nintendo went ahead and like bought the, um, Se- Nintendo of America bought the Seattle Mariners around this time. Cause yeah. they were trying to keep the team alive. That's right, but, yes. ev- but everyone in Washington was like, the Japanese are like buying our, our American pastime. So there was a lot of anxiety around that. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that, um, Nintendo hadn't yet felt the need to like cave to that localization pressure of like, we have to make it an American game for American audiences. They were just like, we're going to make this game the way we would make it and they can deal with it. So do you think they'll ever come out with like a real breaking the fourth wall Mario game where you'll see the actors come out of suit and do something then go in their suits? You know what I mean? That's a really interesting question. That would be super cool. Right? That would be super cool. I, I, they, they should do it. I mean, to a certain extent, you could argue that like Mario Maker has that meta appeal, uh, right? Of like, sure. you are the set designer, yeah, you yeah. are the director, you are the artist creating the levels or whatever. So it's kind of playing into that um, that sense that it, it's just within your reach as the as the the um, as the the player is that right. like it's it's yours and, and you can have it and sure. you can you can play the game however you want. I, I think that even came out in like if you look at Mario World Two, Yoshi's Island. Mm-hmm. The aesthetic of the game got even more childlike with the like right? drawing and sketching yeah. aesthetic, yeah. and I think Miyamoto was was from the beginning just like as game technology improved, he was always like, I don't want realistic art. I don't want you to like see Mario as anything other than this iconic cartoony sure. character because it taps into like his own childhood uh, joys and wonder and imagination, which inspired so much of the Mario series for him was like his own like feeling of how fun it was to explore caves as a little boy or how fun it was to invent worlds in his head and draw characters on his notepad when he was a little boy. And um, so I think that's really neat. That's been preserved to a certain extent um, in a game like Mario Maker today. No, for sure. Well, I'm going to pick in case any of the high ups at Nintendo are listening today. Here's my pitch to you. Bring back Super Mario RPG with this element. How about that? Oh, that's perfect. That's just the right way to do it. Right. I love it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I heard it here. So if they take your idea, they're going to be paying you the big bucks. There you go, there you go. <laughs> so when did you first hear about Super Mario? Because for me, I watched it in the movie The Wizard. You you, you bring it up in the book because obviously who does not know about this movie? It's literally a commercial for Mario 3, right? So that's how I first saw it. Because being up here in Canada, I don't know if we had commercials for it or not. But And obviously the big yellow yeah. box and the artwork on it, it was so different from the other stuff they were putting out there. So that's how I got in. Like I saw it personally with my own eyes. So when did you first hear about Mario three? It's like, it's one of those things where, um, I never remember a time before Mario. 3. Oh, wow. So okay. This was like part of my, because I think I was like, let's see, I, I would have been like three or four when the game came out. 
And so I don't remember hearing about it. I just remember playing it in my living room with my dad. Okay. But that thing about the wizard is like, you know, the, the marketing campaign that they did for this game was truly unprecedented for the time. They right. they marketed this game so hard that it really did inundate every facet of an American child's <laughs> life. I mean, they had McDonald's Happy Meal toys. They had TV commercials. They had the Nintendo Power Fest championships, which yeah. were found publicity sent found you know like centered around this game. They had <laughs> the Wizard is is literally like a ninety minute long commercial for yeah. this game. Uh, feature film yeah. uh, they, they created their own tv show their their own breakfast cereal That's like right. yes. there was just so much it was like it became its own culture this this mario 3 thing and um you couldn't you couldn't avoid it and and it it worked in the sense that um you know eight million copies sold there was a survey right after you know right after the game's release and it, mm-hmm. it found that 90 percent of boys at the time were spending an average of more than four hours per week playing Ooh the game and that was me. um it's, yeah me, i mean it, it's just like nintendo and, and the other thing important to remember at the time is if you were playing a video game in mm-hmm. in 1990 you were playing a nintendo game because they controlled yes. such a massive chunk of the home console market it's so, true. so because of the way they were like the game came out in february of 1990 and so kids had just had all their christmas games and there was nothing else to play mm. so that helps too i mean the way they timed it the way they did it like Everything was about just get like making every single human being buy this game, and it and it worked. <laughs> no, it's so totally because it's so true. Because I had everyone on my block had a Nintendo, except for one yeah. kid. He had the Sega Master System, and every and I hate to say it, everyone looked down on him for it. <laughs> yep. Like yeah, it, 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 it wasn't was... Genesis yet. Genesis now could competed with the SNES, but the Master System, uh, no, that's no, sorry. <laughs> There was just so much, like, uh, and I think, like, so this is something I talk about in the book is that in order for something to carry the kind of nostalgic weight that Mario Brothers, uh, that Mario 3 does for, Mm -hmm. like, millennials today, um, it has to have really permeated the culture. It has to have been everywhere, and so everybody remembers it. Even if you didn't happen to know at your house, you played it at another person's house. Of course. And they were able to do that with this game, and it was strategic. There was also some luck involved i mean one of the things that happened was that it was released in japan in 1988 and um in late 1988 and then there was a a shortage of rom chips and so they couldn't get the cartridges to america for 16 months everyone in america was like if you were into it or if you had seen the wizard you were like getting hysterical about like when am i going to get to play this game and so they had built all this hype and all this excitement the other thing that kind of helped accidentally was that uh, Mario 1 came out and everyone loved it. Everyone, like, you of know, course. lost it over Mario yep. 1. And then Mario 2 was going to come out in America, but they, they um, it was what we know in America as the lost levels in, in Super Mario All-Stars. Right, yes. It was a game that was almost exactly like Mario 1, same play style, same level setup, exactly, same game yeah. design. It just, it just was harder. They had poisonous mushrooms and it was harder. Right. And in America, the Nintendo of America people said, we can't have this be our Mario 2. Japanese players like harder games, but American players don't. And so you're going to have to do something really different. So then, of course, we get Super Mario 2 USA, which John Irwin has a book about with Boss Fight. Yes. He's the one you mentioned with the, like, curtains rising. You you can pick Peach or Luigi or Mario. That was never intended to be a Mario game. It was a completely different game. It was set in the Middle East. It was, and that's why it doesn't really play like other Mario games not at all you dig down you dig right? and throw turnips instead of jumping on people's heads yep. to kill them it's the, all, all the mechanics are so different <laughs> but what this meant was that what this meant was that even if you really liked mario 2 in america it wasn't the true sequel of mario 1 that we true. that we you know knew of, like jumping on a you know shell like a turtle's shell to mm-hmm. kill him and throw him and like whatever it, it wasn't a platformer in the way that mario um two in the way that mario one was and so when mario three came out people have been waiting for a really long time for five years to have another mario game like the first mario game they knew and loved and all sure. of that like it's like a perfect storm with mario three everything the timing the its placement in the series it's um it, how, how the role it played in relation to its, the, its predecessors and this super in, intensive and um, intentional marketing campaign they put behind it, they like created a phenomenon. And that's why we're so nostalgic about it today. 
Yeah, no kidding. And that, and you brought it up too as we were talking that it, and when I when I was reading it, like I try and go back to these older games I've never played. But if you don't have a nostalgic feel, and if it's not as tight controls as a Mario game is, you cannot play this game ever again. Like I'm sorry, like there's some Castlevania games that I I didn't have the chance of playing. Like I played the original ones and I skipped a few or whatever. But I go back and play, and I'm like, you can't move in the air. I can't play this game now. Like you know what I mean? Like I just can't. It really, nothing else seems to matter except game feel. Like, you could have, the game could be about anything. I mean, it's a game about a plumber eating magic mushrooms <laughs> to rescue a princess from a turtle. Yeah. There's no plot, <laughs> there's no interest in, like, the plot or the, but it just, like, if it feels good to just move around on the screen, then people will love the game. And, right. and that's, like, what they did so well. It's just, like, they, they fine-tuned it. And, and me, that was big, Miyamoto's big thing, right? It was, like, it has to be fun. I don't care about anything except fun. I don't right. care about, like, market testing. And I don't care about what – like, I don't care how it's weird crazy. it is. It just, like, has to feel good. And it did. And that's the thing that they do so well, too. I think that was probably one of the very first games where you feel like you're a part of it. Like, it's an extension. It doesn't feel like there's a little bit of delay or something's flickering here and there. And then the other thing, it's true. Not one thing makes Mario 3 great. It's everything together tied up in a nice package that makes it one of the best games of all time. Totally. I mean, it's really interesting to look at Mario 3 and see... um how different it was from Mario 1, even though they were made with the same technology on the same console. That's, so uh, that's like, what's mind-blowing. It's amazing, right? I know. Like, how, I know. How did they, they, they just like figured out how to like really soak the most out of the NES console that they could. And there were some, there were a few like technical innovations that let them do more. But so much was about just like really fine-tuning the physics. Mario 3 has kind of like... Um, uh, like a, like a um, slippery feel. Like mm-hmm. uh, James Swink in his book uh, talks about how like the friction you get when you play Mario, he, he's like a little looser and sloppier. And so that's what lets you just kind of get that really great feeling of just like running through a level and like just top speed. And you get that great feedback of the P meter telling you that you're running fast and making you want to keep running fast. Um, so all of these things, the, the jump was kind of fine tuned in Mario three and Mario one, yeah. you know, the longer you held the button, the the, the higher you would jump. But Mario mm-hmm. three also let you rebound off enemies and, Mario 3 let you have a little more control over your jump in the air, which just yes, felt really good. It did. Um, so, I mean, the whole history of Mario, I think, is just about, like, this evolution of, of game feel from the really rigid Donkey Kong um, Mario, you know, where, where the jump is the same every time, to the jump in Mario 3 just feeling really good because you can, you can do all kinds of things. You can fly, you can um, flutter your tail, you can rebound so off many. people. And well, great. one of my favorite things, and I'm glad you brought it up in the book too, because I thought it was just something that was in Toronto, jumping up to grab the wand at the end of every level. Oh, God. Is there no cooler <laughs> feeling in the world than when you catch the freaking wand midair <laughs> and, and they just freeze you there? Yes. And the whole ship explodes and then you, you're raining down with the debris of the ship and then you land and the <laughs> wand bounces into the hands of the rightful ruler and you've restored justice and... It's a, it's a great reward. There's a lot of different rewards that the game offers you. Yes. I mean, which makes gameplay addicting. There's there's um, sounds that are really rewarding. There's um, there's a lot of things to collect, like items and um, you know to put in your inventory, which is a new thing for the game. Was having an inventory. There's mm-hmm. the coins. There's um, there's just uh, just a lot of like feedback that's designed to make you feel really good every time you're you're beating a level. You get a card. Um, right. It's, it's like yeah, they they just keep giving you like prizes and awards, like different little rewards for for the things you do in that game, which is really smart. So, which one was your favorite quick game that was on there? I really liked the card matching game. Everyone it felt does, like, I know. Right, like it felt like I had some control over it. Yeah, more than the like matching the you know the parts of the guy or whatever. What was That's yours? true. Yeah, no, it had to be that one too, and because it was so like again as a child, you didn't know when it was going to pop up. So in your mind, you thought it was random. <laughs> Actually, there was a pattern behind it, and then also once yeah. you start getting older and playing a few times, you notice that certain ones are the same all the time. So you could just memorize it, right? But the other That's ones, it's really true. The other point. ones are just all yeah. chance, or you have the certain, like, everyone knows at the end of the level, hit the corner at a top speed, you always get a star, right? So that's not really up to chance all the time, right? So It's true, yeah. They, I, I also really liked the, um, the Hammer Brothers, I thought were really fun, especially because they would, they would change what prize they gave you, depending oh, on what world you were in, which right. is such a great way to 
add add replay value and sure. just add variety and novelty was it was just brilliant doing what they what they did with each world having its own theme and the theme was the music and the theme was the map but the theme was also the power-ups you got and the enemies you face and it just kept it endlessly entertaining and was really smart um was inspired by disney world by the way i have mm. to say like they they were really inspired by this idea that like there's a central castle and then there's all these things going on around it these different worlds with different themes because walt disney paid attention right down to like the trash cans in tomorrowland need to look different than the trash cans in Frontierland. you know uh, like he was right. the the employees wear different costumes and, <laughs> But Miyamoto, like, they, they did more mini games in, in that, in Mario 3, than they did in any other Mario game. And Actually, Miyamoto right really, like, believes that that's why the game um, worked, and which I find really interesting because it's not, it's more of an afterthought for me when I think about why I love the game. It's like the mini games were fun, but they were just icing on the cake. And um, Miyamoto, though, has said, like, probably. If, without all the mini games we put into Mario Three, there wouldn't even be a Mario franchise anymore. That's oh, how much he wow, thinks really? it mattered. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. That is crazy. Yeah, because even now, like the newest renditions, like the ones on the Wii, the Wii U, and all that, I like. I know there's mini games in there, but I don't think of that. I think of again the solid gameplay, the addition of playing right. with four people at once. That just blew my mind yeah. when that came out. It was like, oh my! Even though it was super frustrating, and you wanted to elbow people beside you that was falling behind, but other than that, it was yeah. a great time. But I don't think of those mini games. It's true. No, they they were really worried. Miyamoto and his team were really hmm. worried that if they didn't keep adding in these new things, right. um, fans from the previous games like wouldn't be satisfied and wouldn't still be interested. And so they did so much with this like obsession with mini games in Mario Three that for a while afterwards they had like kind of a, a temporary ban on mini games. Like if you think to Super oh. Mario World, which came after Mario Three, right? there's really no mini games. It's there's lots right. of secrets and lots of like secret areas and secret levels exclamation they took points. from Mario Three. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And all of that came from Mario Three was that you had to go back to levels and mm-hmm. replay them, which you couldn't do in Mario Three. There's a new thing in Mar- in Mario World. But that you could go back and keep finding new secrets. But they yeah. aren't mini games. So they they kind huh. of like were obsessed with it and then they right. said, okay, we've done a little we went a little overboard there. Uh, but now looking back, Miyamoto, like he, he truly, you know, he, he's, he said in interviews, like uh, we, the series might have ended if we hadn't had all those in Mario 3, which I find really interesting. So I know the Sky World is your favorite world in Mario 3, but what's your least favorite? My least favorite world? I think World 7 is, is a bit of a letdown, the pipe world. It's okay. also very hard. It's a really hard world. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. It's like a weird theme. I don't know. I, it's just not as like when you when you get into World Two, it's just it, there's that thrill of like oh, there's a brand new world. And mm-hmm. It's fun to swim around in, in World Three. Giant World is hilarious. That's uh, my world favorite. Four. Yeah. Oh yeah. Why do you like World Four the best? Because it's just so different. Like you, these guys are so <laughs> big, and you know what? I found it easy because the enemies are bigger, so I see them coming, so I can yeah. move out of the wave better. <laughs> it's just such a clever idea. <laughs> it's just so different. <laughs> I like that one level in World 4 where you could go into a pipe and make them big or make them small. Yes. It's just so smart. There's like so many weird so many weird things in that game. Yeah, and then I mean like World 5 I, I love because you think it's just this kind of boring like what what's going on? Like this uh-huh. world doesn't have a theme and why is it so small? Right. And then you go into the castle and, and go into the sky and you're like, oh. Yes. And, I mean it's just like incredibly challenging and frustrating how hard the levels are in World 5 but um it's just so much fun. It's so much fun. Okay. So, well, yeah. before we get into the weird story of the week, like I said, I learned a lot of stuff reading your book. So I'm just going to throw some things at you and how you found this or if you found it yourself even playing as a, as a kid. All right? Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. First one, I had no idea about the chain stomp after 50th, it flies away. I did not know that. <laughs> I know. I know. You should. Have you tried it yet? To, no, not yet. See? Yeah. It's pretty freaky. He just, he just like escapes and, and runs away. <laughs> So did you figure that on your own or was it researched? No, it was somewhere in the research, okay. somewhere in one of those articles or um, or one of those books that came out. Yeah, but then I did I did test it myself to make sure that I wasn't putting something in that was wrong. Right? Um, How embarrassing so, would that yeah. be? But I remember just seeing it. And he'll come for you. Before he runs off the screen, he'll come straight for you. Right. Um, so it's great. That's such a nice enemy because, you know, like Miyamoto was really personally inspired to include it because he was so afraid of this, this neighborhood dog that was all chained up when he was growing up. So, yeah, Chain Chop is great. Well, speaking of Miyamoto, I don't know that he made the first level last when making this game. Yes, 
Yes. Where did that come from? I think that came from, there's a great interview series with um, the late Satoru Iwata, the president of Nintendo um, for a long time. He did an Iwata Asks uh, series of interviews on the Nintendo website where he would get together with the different developers of all the games and interview them and ask them questions about their process. And I'm pretty sure that came from there. And then another one, this one was weird. I don't know that some people in Nintendo were inspired originally by Altered Beast. Yes, yes, I did right? see that. And I think that was also from Iniwata Ask. They, you know, in Japan, they like, they're, they're, they're well, in, I mean, in Nintendo at that time, they were really just kind of like, like not afraid to model, like take ideas from anywhere, to take okay. ideas from, um, from Altered Beast, from arcade games, from, uh, from Disneyland, from Alice in Wonderland with the mushrooms. They just sure. were drawing from Westerns. They were just drawing in influences wherever, which is so fun. Oh my God. So, okay. And lastly, Mario, obviously everyone knows his first appearance was in Donkey Kong, but he wasn't named Mario yet. I didn't know he was named just Jumpman. Jumpman. Yeah. The only person who had um, a name was Donkey Kong. And then they named um, Princess Peach. I think they named her Paulette after... Um, Mm. After 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 some after some like new age new woman um, uh, hero, but they um, yeah it was just it was just Jumpman. He had no he had no identity because it was all about Donkey Kong, the the big bad guy. And then oh sorry, I got one more. I just remembered this now. Yeah. It, it just came to me. I didn't even have this written one down. How about the princess only being taken away after level seven? Yeah. What I that? I, my mind blew. I was like, are you kidding me? And then when I started playing it again, I'm like, that's right, because you talk to the kings every time. You just assume you're chasing the princess. Right. Isn't that so weird? Right? It's, it's yeah, it, it kind of like rewrites the whole like narrative in your head of the game. And like, he's, he's just escalating the stakes there when he kidnaps her, you know? Um, yeah. So weird. So wild. She's writing you letters, not from captivity, but from like wherever <laughs> her, her safe place wherever, sure. where she's just like urging you she's like the queen of all the kings i don't know how their like like monarchical system of government works in the mushroom kingdom <laughs> right. but, um, yeah it's it's it, that that really blew my mind because I, I felt so motivated in the game that i was the whole point of this was to rescue the princess but actually the whole point of the game is to turn the kings back into their human form and then at the very last minute you have to rescue the princess too it's i know crazy. so weird all right ready for the weird story of the week Yes. All right. Well, before I get into the weird story, all of us have been to the dentist at least once in our lives or hopefully more than once in our lives. But have you had any weird or horrendous dentist encounters in your lifetime? I had to have um, a horrible procedure done, but it was done very well. So I don't think that counts. Okay. So you're lucky. Well, I'll I'll share mine quickly and then I'll get into this weird story. So when I was 14, my wisdom teeth started growing in. And then I was starting to get like an overbite and then they did the x-rays and they were noticing that it was pushing my bottom teeth forward. But my top teeth oh. were fine. So, okay. So they said, okay, we just have to take out your bottom wisdoms. You could keep your top. Not a problem. Okay. No problem. Go in. It's routine at the time, whatever. Now, for some odd reason, and this is the first time I found this out, I have a high tolerance of pain and it takes a lot of drugs to sedate me for some reason. Mm. Don't ask me oh, why. Wow. I don't know. This is Whatever. So they put the regular, I guess, whatever, it's CCs in me for a, a boy my age, at 14, whatever, you know. So they waited, they came back, and they're like, oh, then they just tapped on my jaw. They're like, do you feel that? I was like, no, because it was a bit numb. But as soon as, okay, so to, I don't want to scare anyone who has to take out their wisdom teeth. And mind you, this was almost 30 years ago, so bear with me. Back then, they would put in like clamps in the back of your mouth, and you would literally hear the crunch, and they literally just <gasps> yank it out. That's how they used to do it. I felt everything. So I heard oh my God. and I felt and I couldn't say anything because my, so it was like on the outside, I was numb, but it didn't go all the way through to my nerves sort of thing. Right. So I felt oh everything. Oh my God. Oh my God. That is a terrifying story. Right. That's not a weird story. That's a scary story. <laughs> well, I say it's weird just because of the fact that I needed more drugs to sedate me at 14. Yeah. Like, and yeah. like, it's not like I've been drinking or doing recreational drugs at the time. Like, you know what I mean? I was like pure. So you would totally. think that it would affect me like that, but it didn't. When I, when I had my wisdom teeth out, I had just seen a scary movie and the, <laughs> I don't remember what the, I don't remember what it was called, but the right. premise of the movie was that someone gets put under for surgery, but they don't give that person enough anesthetic. So the person 
is it, like basically the horror movie I saw was the story you just told. Like the person is under enough that they can't talk. I know that movie. And, and tell yes, anyone. I, I saw that movie. What movie is it? What is it called? I'm 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 I can't remember the name, but for some odd reason, I'm thinking of like James Franco as the main star or something like that. Is, I can't remember now, but I, I know think what you're, you're talking probably about. Right. I don't remember. I was so freaked out that, like, as I was counting backwards from 10 with my anesthetic in my sleepy state, I asked the, the anesthesiologist, will I wake up? And I meant during the surgery because I was very afraid to of wake course. up during the surgery. That's a fear of mine, But she thought I meant, like, ever. Will I wake up ever from this procedure? So I say to her, will I wake up? Hoping the answer will be no, you'll be out the whole time. And she says to me, like, of course you'll wake up. Of course. Um, we'll see you soon. And so my last thoughts as I was going under were like, no, <laughs> so scary. Well, my story about the teeth was not the worst story of the week. That was just a personal story I threw in there. Okay, good. Okay. So, okay, this is just weird because you lived in Alaska for a bit and this story comes all the way from Anchorage. So I don't know if you heard of this maybe when you were there because this, no, probably not because this happened last year. The only reason why I'm bringing it up because this dentist got charged for something and he finally went to jail for it this year. So, back in January, this man was found guilty for 46 charges. Now, some charges include Medicaid fraud, reckless endangerment, and this one just blew my mind. Unlawful dental acts, which included extracting teeth on a hoverboard. What? So you know those like sort of hoverboards that you move around with no control? Well, it's not really... I don't know why we call them hoverboards. They're just scooters yeah. with, without the handles. That's what I call them. But yeah, he performed surgeries on that. And here's the kicker. In his lifetime of being a dentist, he's charged over $200 million for intravenous sedation. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. See? That's really freaky. Exactly. But they never said that it was se- like lewd sexual acts or anything like that. He didn't go the sexual route. But now, like I said, over 40 charges of what? What was this guy doing? Like how many God, different things could you have been doing to be charged 40 different times? I should probably look him up and make sure he wasn't my dentist. <laughs> like, I, I feel the need to Google this man's name or something. Right? So, well, he got charged. He's in jail now for 12 years. I'm sure he'll be out sooner, but it's like... And he pleaded down. It was originally, like I said, I think it was uh, 46 charges. He pleaded down to only 40. So they let him off for six. Oh, I mean, dentists, like, they have such a creepy vibe. And now I feel kind of vindicated in, in having that vibe, you know? Yeah. I, well, it takes a special person to look down someone's throat all day long, right? I've heard they have the highest suicide rate yeah. of any profession. I, well, yeah. I know. I've heard this my whole life. I wonder if it's still true to this day. But yeah, growing yeah, up. Yeah, I, I heard that's the same thing. Well, Elise, thank you that's for coming cool. aboard. Now's your time to shine oh. where people could find you, where people could buy your stuff. Anything you want to plug, floor's all yours. Take your time. The best place to go is just my website, elisenor.com. So it's A-L-Y-S-E-K-N-O-R-R.com. And you'll find all of my books up there and... Um, thanks for checking it out. Perfect. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast DAP at gmail.com. Rewind to the top of the show, support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out, helps me out. And most importantly, please rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. One question before I let you go. If you could rank, obviously I already know, your number one Mario game is Mario 3. Now what's your number two and what's your number three? Two would be Super Mario World. So fun. Okay. So many secrets. Sure. Yep. Yoshi. Yeah, I Yoshi. know. Oh, great. Who doesn't love Yoshi? And then I think I think number number three would probably be Super Mario sixty four. Just like oh. absolutely revolutionary, addicting. No, great. no. See, speaking you, of nostalgia. Okay, well here here we go because I I touched on this with Gabe. I've been recently playing. I w- I had the three D All Star Collection, so I went back to play it because I skipped the N sixty four and Game GameCube era. I went right from like Super Nintendo to PS one, oh, yeah. so I never played okay. those uh, systems. Right? Yeah. I can't fucking stand this game. I speaking of throwing a remote up against the TV, yeah. the controls are not tight like a Mario game should be. 
the and the camera angles obviously because there's so many times where I, i'm so used to revolving 360 to see what i want to see and it limits you yes. towards that i you can't and i know they just yeah. put in a patch recently as of this recording an, an update where you could fin- finick a bit more with the camera angles i still oh, haven't gone cool. to check it out but again there's no nostalgic level towards me i have no memories so to go back and yeah. play that one it's hard but i'm gonna get through it i'm halfway it's, through it's, well, i'm getting there because like at like at the time, the controller was trying to like it was it was the first controller true, true. that ever yeah. had an analog yes. um, joystick yes. that was trying to figure out how to navigate. So, the, so I mean, that Nintendo sixty four controller is so weird. Like it, it's like you're holding this three pronged bull, and it's it's so bizarre. And then they didn't, yeah, they didn't know how to do the camera. They left the D on there for. If you didn't grow up speaking Klingon, it's really hard to learn it. But if you did, you know, if you did, then you're, then you're like fluent and it's fine. And you're like, yes, it's great. Yeah, no kidding. So if I have to rank my top three, mm-hmm. it would be Mario 3, Mario 2, because it was so different. Controversial. Controversial. I know, I know. And then for true <laughs> nostalgic reasons has to be Mario Super Mario Wii, just because I had so much fun with mm. it with my wife and my nieces. We all played like four player at the same time. And there's just so many good Aww, memories so involved sweet. with that game. But really honorable mention has to be Super Mario RPG, because I mentioned that. I just love that game. Yeah, was- yeah it's a good one. And Mario 2, um, the, the, you know, the weird outlier that's not like any other Mario game, is actually Miyamoto's favorite Mario game. See? So there you go. Great minds think alike then. Good company. Yeah, you're in good company. <laughs> Perfect. On that note, she's Elise. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace. Peace.